Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. This podcast from Montreal just for Laughs Festival. I know you're going to like it a lot. I've had this in the can for so long, and I'm so, so grateful to bring it to you because I want it to be something really special for the holidays with my guest, Brian Callen. And this guy, there's something about him that is so important and so relevant that I want to share with you. And the only way that I can give you any kind of insight into Brian is to tell you about an artist who I've always admired and loved in music, and that's Eminem. And recently he came out with a new album called Revival that was released this past Friday. And if you haven't listened to the album, do yourself a favor, shut off your phone, shut off your television, lock your door and just sit down and listen to this because it's a true, true representation of the mind of most artists. The first song I heard on the album was a track called Walk on Water, which is a duet with Beyonce. And his description of himself as an artist and what he feels inside and how he wears his heart on his sleeve and how much he cares about the art form of what he's doing. Yet, his opinion of himself does not match up to my opinion and the opinion of most people who know anything about the world of lyrics and storytelling and songwriting and the kind of art form and music that he has created for audiences all over the world. It will blow you away what he thinks of himself and what drives him to be as powerful as he is. 
And when I think about Brian Callen, I think of the same kind of artist. Sure, Brian Callen wouldn't sit here and tell me that he compares himself to Eminem. Why would he? That's not the way he is as an artist. And I don't expect anybody listening to think that any comedian stacks up necessarily to the level of storytelling and brilliance and power that Eminem does. Very few do. But the similarities that I found between Brian Callen and Eminem are the way the artist's mind works, the way the drive, the striving to be the best representation of yourself, to try to be a good person to everybody, to try to be as good as you possibly can in every area of your business, to try to prepare the best you can, but sometimes failing and realizing that you've made mistakes, to try to get along with everybody, yet realizing that there are certain people who you can never get along with, and to take risks and to make statements in your world, whether it's podcasting or radio or your stand-up, that aren't always popular, that might be controversial, but they can blaze a trail and constantly take care of your mind and your body as much as you can to get to the next level, knowing that you're around people all over the place in your profession that can sway you in a different direction, and sometimes you do, and you have to get yourself back on the tracks. And when I think of Brian Callen, he's that kind of person. I've never met anybody that read more books than him, that had more knowledge about the world, philosophy, the different styles of thought process in the world from the beginning of recorded time until now. I assure you, if you live your life in a way where you look at the world in terms of your art form, spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, and embody the qualities that I just talked about, I can guarantee you, you'll have a chance at the kind of career that Brian Callum has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Harry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today with my guest, Brian Callen. We're going to have a great time. This guy is something special, and you're going to find out why. So let's introduce him, and then we'll start the podcast, if you're still awake. All right, Brian Callen was born in the Philippines and spent the first 14 years of his life overseas in countries like India, Pakistan, Lebanon, Greece, and Saudi Arabia before moving to the United States. Callen got his big break as an original cast member on Mad TV. 
He then went on to play numerous roles on the small and big screen. In television, shows like Sex and the City, Entourage, Californication, West Wing, CSI, NYPD Blue, and How I Met Your Mother. And on the big screen, blockbusters like Old School and Bad Santa. His credits also include The Hangover, The Hangover Part 2, Warrior, and the television shows The Goldbergs and the groundbreaking episodic on HBO, Oz. In 2012, he released a fantastic stand-up comedy special called Man Class. In addition to all these great things, Brian is also a prolific podcaster, and his show, The Fighter and the Kid, that he hosts alongside Brendan Schaub, is incredible. you got to check it out because he interviews the greatest comedians, actors, doctors, entrepreneurs, such as David Blaine, John Leguizamo, and Bill Burr. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce the incredibly talented and unbelievably intelligent and extraordinary person, Brian Callen. Brian Callen. Here at the Juste pour Rire. Sorry, that's French for just for laughs. I thought it was French for big Jew. It I didn't is. Know what it's it both. Was. It's both for big Jew. <laughs> I heard you one time say to a client, or a client said, and I loved it. You said, "If I'm your manager, I'll be your Jew, and I'll build a pyramid for you if I have to." And I love that. That's a great way to. I'd be like, "That's a." If somebody said that, I would. I think I'd sign with them. One of the things that I believe. Mm that other managers are probably going to kill me for saying is I think management is not as difficult as it appears to be. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain why. If I were representing you, we sit down, you give me your bucket list. Maybe in the beginning of your career, you say, well, Barry, I'd like to be a regular at the comedy cellar. I'd like to get a spot on Letterman. I'd like to get a role in a sitcom in a movie. I'd like to get a commercial agent. I'd like to get a theatrical agent. I'd like to headline a A-list comedy club. Maybe those are some of your goals. And mm-hmm. it's my job is very simple. I take the list and I check off the things on the list. And then when the list is over, I come to you and I say, what's your next list? And I know it's hard to get certain things to happen. They always say for you, the reason why you're successful and anybody in any profession is successful is because they've done something at least three times extraordinarily well and successful. So for me, when I look at my life and career as a manager, also producing TV and some film, and even on the podcast, I say to myself, well, Even at my lowest moments, when I think of myself and I'm on the fetal position thinking, am I doing enough or whatever it is, I always have to say to myself and remind myself, Barry, you've done it at least three times, sometimes 10 times, sometimes 25 times. And so I know there's times when I've taken artists who technically didn't belong in the spot they leapfrogged over other people. And I know that's one of the skill sets I always had. If you worked with me as a young artist, 
you were going to pass other people like a rocket ship. That was my goal. That was my vision mm. with your list and my talent and your talent. It wasn't malicious. I didn't want to know the names and the faces because then I would feel guilty about it. I just said to myself, I want you to be in a position next year where you pass this amount of people and you pass this amount of people and you pass this amount of people. And then they look and they say, what the fuck happened? How did that happen? Well, it's funny. That's, an, that's a perspective that a, a manager to be successful probably has to have. But I think as an artist, that can be self-defeating. Because or let's, let's just say an artist, you know, you got to be careful with that word. But somebody who's in the business of original self-expression or at least in reaching for that goal. The, you know, if you start comparing or trying to beat other people, uh, you're, you're go- then there are people that do it. And I, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not. I've never been a competitive person in that sense. I've always been more interested in and terrified that at the end of my life I won't have done something that surprised me, or I won't have mined what was what was there to be dug up, you know, or I I won't have um, done something original. That that's what I'm terrified of. So so that becomes such a such a freaking solitary and uh, individual pursuit that has almost nothing to do with anybody else. And you have to remind yourself of that. And you're talking about being lucky versus, you know, having done something three times or more. That's why it's also very important to mark where you came from and where you are now. You start comparing yourself to other people in this business. You're right. There are, there are reasons for stardom and there are reasons for money that sometimes have very little to do with, and it's okay. But it has very little to do with raw talent sometimes or, you know what I mean? We, we see, how many people do you see who have so much talent and for whatever reason, man, they get in their own way. That, that, that's the, the hardest thing in many ways, especially for people that are very talented, is that they, they can't get out of their own way. The self-destructive behavior, one of the things that I believe wholeheartedly and I probably will say it until I pass away which could be after this podcast well after I devastate you keep going is that anybody who's looking at something that went wrong in their career or something that happened in their life where they were taken out I don't care what profession you're in let's say you're at the law firm You've been there five years and you get fired. My thought process is always the same. If I could be an imaginary person meeting them, I would say, okay, get your pen ready and your pad of paper. And I want you to list all the people that you know of that fill these qualifications at the law firm. How many people here show up early, stay late? do an extraordinary job and incredibly original work and are beloved by every single person at the firm. Could you write down all the people who have those qualifications that have been fired, please? (laughs) And the list will be empty in every profession. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about. You always have to be in that position where you do that, and if you give people even the remotest, slightest opening, you will be taken out. You can't give anybody anything. You have to do it. And when I talked before about the, it's interesting you said as an artist that would be self-destructive to think that way. 
remember, if you will, I don't mean to go back with what I said. As a manager, I made the landscape of the people faceless and nameless. I was only concerned with the laser focus sure. of my artist and making sure that they got to the next level and that they were prepared and they were ready. Because I'm not an artist. I can't go in the room with you when you're auditioning for Mad TV and David Salzman and Fax and Adam and all those guys. I can't be in the room with you, mm. but... I can spend hours and hours and hours with you beforehand pretending you're in the room with them and I'm there with you. And with my experience and knowledge of being in those rooms, casting shows like that, I can help an artist have that, I hate to say it, but it's one of the great things as a manager you can offer if you have the experience is an unfair advantage over the people that don't have somebody like mm. me who knows the landscape and knows what it's about and has a great relationship with the artist where there's safety and trust. A lot of times you're with a manager, and I could say a lot of the relationships that have ended for me sometimes end because at a certain point in time, the faith or the trust goes away from where it was before well this happened this happened and this happened and now i'm not getting those things and those things aren't happening and as an artist as dennis leary so eloquently said to me when he fired james dixon after the movie tooth by sea with sandra bullock i remember go that well. movie james dixon tried to convince him not to do the movie and dennis said look it's five million dollars then he fired james dixon and I remember going up to Dennis the day it happened, and I said, Dennis, why would you fire James Dixon? I mean, your career's been amazing. It's just one bad thing. He said, I'm not happy that I did the movie. I said, but he told you not to do the movie. And Dennis paused, and as he always did, he took a big puff out of that cigarette, and the smoke blew out in the air like I was coming out of a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. And he said, Barry... I can't fire myself. <laughs> ah, show business. Well, <laughs> all right, Dennis. All right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's... <laughs> Fuck. I couldn't be a manager. I'd punch the guy in the fucking face. <laughs> well, you look like you're capable of punching anybody. And if they look... You could literally circumcise a small Jewish boy off your body. It's that's unbelievable. That's what I like to hear, brother. I'm... I just was finished. I just finished boxing with Dove Davidoff yesterday. It was a lot. Of, he he can move. That kid can throw. This is what I've always fascinated about you, also, which a lot of people don't understand is that I think it's easy to look at certain people who are funny. You look at Louis Anderson. The guy just won his fourth Emmy Award. He's probably about to win his fifth. Mm -hmm. He probably weighs three hundred and fifty or four hundred pounds. Yeah. His finger has never been in the shape you're in. <laughs> you associate comedy a lot of times with Farley or even Mitch Hedberg or Big J Okerson or Attell. And you face a little prejudice sometimes when you're in shape. Yeah, so you you're know. one of the few people in our business in tip-top physical shape. If you if you work hard enough, you can uh, get to a point where you where your exercise and your diet gives you more energy, and so then makes everything else more possible. I've always just been I've always liked being in my body. There's a difference, right? That that that's a that's a state that you can find very pleasurable. 
And I, I think that there's too much emphasis on the idea that, well, I got to be disciplined and I can't eat this or I got to work out. I don't, I don't think that ever lasts. I think you've got to associate exercise and eating well and, um, and getting enough sleep and all that stuff with a pleasure. That's all. It just becomes something that's easier to do. You know, eating well is easier than eating poorly in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, it's, it's just it's 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 just like something else. It's like you, it becomes just a way of life. That's all. You know, you feel better when you're in touch with yourself. Always a little sore. <laughs> Here's a probably a sensitive and personal question, but you've worked with so many artists, hmm. all different idiosyncrasies and all different ways of life. How do you feel as an artist when you're hanging out at the table at the comedy cellar with the late Greg Giraldo and you know what he's doing? Mitch Hedberg, you know what he's doing. Mm. Insert comic here who drinks five beers a night. Yeah. I think that those guys do one of two things. They have to come to terms with it because they realize that it's um, taking away from their art or their expression or what they could be. They all come to terms with it as they get older. And so then then they find some value and humor in the redemption and the struggle. And sometimes, you know, to be a comic requires a certain form of self-destruction. You know, self-destruction is very, very attractive in the beginning. It's very informative and attractive and maybe even in some ways... Uh, part of what it takes to be a good comic or a great comic or even a great artist. You know, uh, Hemingway would drink. I mean, if you read A Movable Feast, I think it, it, I think it was A Movable Feast, he would write for eight hours. He had iron discipline. He would write for eight hours, but he had a bottle waiting for him at the end of that writing, and then he would tear himself up. But, you know, I think that if if for me I, I i when i watch somebody tearing themselves up it's it and they don't stop then the result is death or the result is they just kind of fade away and that's always a shame right because in my opinion i do these things because i can and if you have some historical perspective i mean think about what i do for a living and where i live let me go through the list here I'm a white American male who gets paid to make people, I get paid a lot to make people laugh. I get paid a lot to be a podcaster and speak my mind. Well, okay, let's break it down. I live in a time when we have antibiotics and we have vaccines. Those two things push me way beyond my, my biology if I were living just in the wild. For all you people out there who are into whole foods and nature, God bless and I love the environment, but Mother Nature is a constant assault on, on your on your biology and what you're about try growing shit without herbicides and pesticides sometimes go ahead see see how your winter goes uh i'm not saying i'm i don't eat organically but you know what i'm saying but let's just go through it for a second uh, uh, so antibiotics vaccines i have representative government i'm not living in germany in 1938 1932 i i don't have to worry about some some uh, policeman or some ward of the state knocking on my door because i wrote something they didn't like or said something they didn't like so again representative government i live in a time when there's plenty of food and i don't have to watch my children go hungry or die of smallpox which is the story of all of our ancestors when you have that kind of historical perspective and then you get to make a living by doing 
what you would do anyway. What did Schiller say? Man is never more himself than when at play. Play being that which you do for the sake of its own doing. Well, that's my life, man. So if I'm not going to honor that, and if I'm not going to uh, be the best I can under those incredible circumstances, then that to me is a sin. I'm not religious, but that's a sin. That's something I couldn't live down. And so I think when you educate yourself and when you have an idea of where you stand in the grand pantheon of, of, of you know, history, you, it makes you two things. One is grateful and it's also very humbling and, and, compa- and, and it also makes you compassionate because, because it, you know, if you're not going to do something with the opportunity given to you, look, I grew up all over the world. I lived in, I was born in the Philippines. I lived in India, Calcutta and Bombay, which is now Mumbai. I then moved to Lebanon. I then moved to Pakistan. I then moved back to Lebanon and the war broke out. And I lived through the war for six months when, uh, you know, and we had to sleep in the, the basement of the Holiday Inn and I, we had to leave everything behind. Then we were evacuated to Greece and then I lived in Saudi Arabia. I was a white kid in an air conditioned car. And I went to, in the meantime, I went to Africa. I went to communist China and I went to communist Russia. I'm 50, so I remember when these countries were half the world when I was growing up was lived under slavery, lived behind big walls with governments that wouldn't allow them. Remember this. Most of you and I grew up in a world where not only did a lot of people didn't ha- not have enough to eat, but we lived, Latin America lived in middle, military dictatorships, and China and Russia were nothing short of communist dictatorships. They were run by the Politburo. So I saw these things, I experienced them, I tasted them, I really saw them. And it's very shaming. I was full of shame. I remember in Africa when I gave a uh, these villagers were at our window and I never forgot giving this woman my lunch. I had a box shitty lunch and they ripped it apart. They were so hungry. Now, how do you think that made me feel? It's you feel you're full of shame. Why did I get so lucky? I didn't do anything. The math just fell in my favor. I was just born on third base and God let me run home. I could have been born in one of those villages and that that was never lost on me. When I was walking through the bazaars of Yemen and I saw somebody with leprosy, I couldn't eat for a week because he didn't have a nose and he didn't have any fingers. That's what leprosy does to you. But when you see those things, when I was in Pakistan and I watched the guy who worked on our compound shiver under all these blankets because he was having a malaria attack, I saw those things, man. So... Now that I live and I've never been hungry, <laughs> I've never been afraid, really. How can I not? I do two things. One is I'm grateful and I work my ass off to try to be the best comic or whatever I can be. And by the way, I fail at that all the time. And the other is I, I like to come into contact with a little objective reality. It's why I box. It's why I go and spar sometimes, get punched in the fucking face. I want to feel what that's like. Because if I don't, then I'm going to forget I'm, my, my, my instrument is going to get dulled, you know, and, and so that's where I come from. So, so I never worry about people who are not in shape and not taking care of themselves. I, I, I think that that's, that's probably a product of something I maybe don't understand. I don't like to judge because I think we all have a form of alcoholism. Some people have an alcoholism that's just more destructive. And again, we all have to come to terms with that. We all are apathetic in one way or another. But... You know, again, this is a long way of saying that I'm just very grateful, man. I'm very grateful for my position. And I think it's very important to honor it. I think of you as a healer. Well, thank you. 
I appreciate that. And I can count the comics on half a hand <laughs> that I feel are healing. They're not a healing bunch. They're, not, they're, they're a pretty tortured bunch. I, I, I don't think I'm a depressive, tortured guy. Yes. I think I'm a very happy guy. Yeah, yeah. so... I hate to bring you back to that table again, but I'm mm. going to bring you back there. So you're sitting with Mitch Hedberg and Greg Giraldo, and you know what's going on. Mm. And you are a healer, and you don't want to keep the window up and keep eating the sandwich right. when it comes to them. In your heart, I know you want to figure out a way to say something to them that changes their life forever and keeps them alive. Mm -hmm. Do you ever take it upon yourself and try to make a difference? When they're young. As I get older, I, I am very careful about trying to rescue anybody because um, maybe it's impossible. But when someone is young and I think I see them racing toward a wall, and um, I will tell them to turn the wheel. And I'll do it in a subtle way, hopefully. Um, I, I try to do that. I think if I wasn't a comic, I would have been a teacher. And I always say to people who are younger than me, please listen to me because I've made way more mistakes than you. I'm not smarter. I may not even know more. You know, and knowledge and intelligence are rather compartmentalized. But I've made a lot of mistakes, man. And I have, I have good pattern recognition you know, that's what happens as you get older. You can recognize patterns. You can walk across the street and I can see you and I know your whole life, brother. I can see the way you dress and the way you hold your body. I know what you're ashamed of and I know what you're proud of. And that's something I'm very good at because I had to be growing up and being thrown into a whole different new circumstance every two years. I wanted to make friends. So I, the way you make friends is you, you, you get okay at sports and don't be the last guy picked and make people laugh. And, and, then, and then when you find people, you, I learned very quickly what to protect them from. You know, they, people have a lot of shame. So I would always accentuate what they were proud of. I would notice it and I would bring it to the fore and I would highlight it. And so people want to be around you. And I got very good at that. That's a form of communication. And I did it because I like people. I've never had any strategic friends. One of the best compliments I ever got, and I, 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 this, is, this has been very complimentary to me, by the way, so thank you. So let me just keep going with this. But uh, Dove David, I said at my wedding, he said, what I like about you is that you have no agenda for friendship. He said, you know, you, you, your friends, you have one guy's worth $100 million and another guy who literally drove his, uh, his you know, van here, you know, because that's where he lives. Yes, that's right. I, I am friends because if you have some color and you make me laugh and you can teach me something, uh, then, then I'm probably going to be friends with you regardless. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's, uh, it might not be so good for your career. It's good to be a little bit strategic with your friendships, but you know, that's, that's what I am for better or for worse. One of my favorite expressions on the podcast is change the pattern. Tell our audience the one thing that you continued to do over and over again the same mistake and was the hardest one for you to change the pattern on and you finally did? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I like, you know, as far as changing patterns, let me just say that I think it's very, very important to 
take a little inventory of the kinds of questions you ask yourself on a daily basis. A lot of times we don't ask ourselves very helpful questions, right? A lot of times the questions are, am I lovable? What if I fail? We do all this and, and you know, and, and part of that's endearing, you know, I hate being around the pathological narcissist. I mean, Donald Trump is always asking himself, you know, how, how you know, I don't know, um, why am I not the emperor of the world? You know, that guy is, and it got him uh, somewhere. But I think, I think that um, changing patterns is really a question of taking, the, taking inventory of the questions you ask yourself. You'll find that most of them are not very helpful. And then changing the question so that there is a good answer to it, right? So what action do I have to take today to get to, to be who I want? Or who do I want to be? And what do I want people to say about me? And, and, and what am I going to regret not having done? when I'm 90 and all those questions those are better questions to ask but I think that for me it was always my tenuous relationship with success um, with the idea that um, I was I was happy with with having just enough and and you know Kevin Hart who I just love I love him so much and I was with him last night amazing man he's a beautiful person and so by the way is um, Russell Peters you want to talk about two dudes who've not changed even a little bit not even a little bit, man. You're talking about, they've, I don't know how much money they probably have. Kevin is still so funny and so wonderful. And so he's so generous. I watched him and nobody saw this. And I'm glad I'm saying this on a podcast. I watched him reach into his pocket, pull out 200 bucks. And it was cash, 200, two crisp $100 bills. And he very quietly put it in the waitress's hand. He just thanked her. He said, thank you for everything tonight. And just gave her this extra 200 bucks. That's who that guy is. He's just the most generous son of a bitch on the planet. And I'll say something about Russell Peters, and you're right about Kevin Hart, amazing. And Russell Peters, just to say something that he might be mad at me for saying, mm. I had an artist open up for him on the road all over the world. And I've had people open up and be the person who's headlining all over the world. I've seen both things. Yeah. And they were just walking through town and... They were walking by a watch store and, you know, Russell was looking at stuff and said, what kind of watches do you like? And the guy just told him and he just walked in the store and he bought him this watch that was thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> just so to great. say thank you. Yeah. And just to That's show Russell that. Peters. That's Russell Peters. That generosity. And, you know, for me, I, I always wanted that. I want that success. You know, I would love to do that. But I have, I have practiced a very sort of subtle form of self-sabotage, as we all have. When it really counts, I may not really prepare to the nth degree, you know, and these things. Now, I've, I think I've gotten over that. But, you know... You don't prepare. Sometimes. I, I used to. Now I do. Now I do. When you, you know, tested for Mad TV. I prepared. I was desperate. I was desperate. That was different. See, I, I, when I've really performed and done well, a lot of my big successes have come out of desperation. And, and I just couldn't fail. I couldn't face going back to what I was doing. I, didn't, I couldn't face staying on the same rung or going back one. I had to get the... It was so unbearable to be where I was, you know, working at Goldman Sachs as a temp and living in Hoboken, New Jersey in this little place. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't go back to New York City in the summertime. I think it was August when I got that show. And I was there was I was going to die if I didn't get that. You know, it was a little bit like that. Um, so the the times that I've you know, I was a wrestler and, and uh, I remember I beat the Connecticut state champion. And I wasn't supposed to. He was so good. And um, I beat him. 
and I, it was such a desperate, it, I was so desperate to win. Like I couldn't lose. It was the fight of my life. I was a young man. I was probably 17 or 18. Do you mind just taking a minute? Yeah. Because I think this is important because a lot of people in the world don't know what it takes to be a wrestler from the moment you finish your last wrestling match until the next wrestling match. Would you just mind sharing the preparation of what you have to do I mean, to make dude, weight like, and become a wrestler? Yeah, the sucking weight was the was it's a nightmare because people don't know. So oh yeah, you're not only training really hard. You know, I think somebody did this thing where the Navy SEALs. I think the majority of Navy SEALs are either wrestlers lacrosse players or water polo players there's some weird kind of thing but wrestling is fundamentally shaped who i was you know you learn how tough you're not and how tough you are and both are very important and both are very humbling but um there's something about imposing your will on another man and having that other man impose his will on you that that makes you very respectful of everybody i don't know man i get in a fight or i'm in a bar and some guy looks like whatever i don't know I never judge a book by its cover because I know dudes who look like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and you can tie him in a knot. And then there are guys that look like the plumber or the UPS guy and they make you feel like they turn you into a new woman. You know, it's a very different thing. So, but wrestling is, wrestling is relentless. Wrestling is, I mean, come on, you're, you're the training, the running, the sprinting. I went to Dan Gable's uh, intensive wrestling camp in Iowa um, between my senior, my junior and senior year. And uh, they closed the camp down, I believe, the next year because it was a, a third of the camp would drop dropped out before the, I think it was the three weeks were over or whatever. But and not I, Brian. Can no, we? I didn't. I didn't. I, I couldn't go home and face my father who was a Marine. It wouldn't have been. But I, tr I almost did. I've never been put in that position where I almost, well, I'd never been pushed like that. And I, was, I went to American University, which was a D1 school for wrestling. And I was supposed to wrestle there. And I remember thinking, if this is what D1 wrestling is, if I got to wake up at 5.30 in the morning and run sprints for an hour and then wrestle twice a day, I don't want to do it. I don't like it that much. Oh, and by the way, suck weight the whole time? Keep it. You can keep that shit. Could and you define to the audience suck weight? So so I'll, I'll uh, let's say I was, uh, I would have to wrestle at 131, let's just say, when I was, you know, in high school, I was probably a junior. And I'd walk, I'd hit the scale at 143, Okay. So I got to lose eight pounds in a hurry. Now, you're not losing that. First of all, you've already not been eating much. You never want to miss a meal. But back then, we didn't really cut weight properly. So, you know, your weigh-in might be the next day, man, or it might be in two days. So you're not eating. You're not, you know, you're not going to eat any, maybe some salad. But more importantly, you're going without water weight. That means you put on like a rubber suit and you run and you run or you bike and you bike and um, I used to run around the pool while, the, while they were swimming because it was like all you know hot and steamy in there. And this is New England, the middle of the winter, and you're, and you're just trying to lose it. And then, you, and then you don't drink anything that night. And try working out all day and then just don't drink anything and then don't drink all. And you would have these dreams at night, man, where you were literally dying of thirst. It was the worst, just a little water on your tongue. And boxers go through this. There's that great scene in Raging Bull where he's in the shower, he goes, just a little water, just down my mouth, just a little, put a little ice in my tongue. No water, no ice. And he leaves, you know, he can't. And then you'd stand on the scale, and I would stand, there was a technique where you would stand, you'd, you'd stand like a penguin 
on the scale where your heels would be on the corner. They'd be kind of like penguining out on the corner just because that would take maybe a couple ounces off. And I never forgot, I couldn't make the weight. I was spitting and spitting and spitting. I couldn't make the weight. I couldn't get any water out of my body. And we had to go. And my buddy John Caffrey, who was a New York State wrestler, a killer, said, I don't know why this works, but try this. He said, stand on your head for a minute. I stood on my head for a minute, got back on scale and made weight. I still don't know how that works, but it worked. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, it, that, that was the kind of shit you'd go through. Then you go wrestle. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing for a young man to kind of wrestle with his mortality. <laughs> or at least to suffer a little bit, you know. Tell the audience how you use that mentality in wrestling and now boxing and how you spar and how that applies to your career? Well, I think and I wish that um, people were taught how to learn. There's an art to learning. And there's a great book by Josh Waitzkin called The Art of Learning. There's another good book about deep practice. There's one, another book called The Practicing Mind, but a very good book called The Talent Code as well. And there is a way to get better at something. It doesn't mean you have to grind and be this exhausted, you know. I mean, part of the reason you get so tired when you box is you're just afraid. I'm always afraid. When when I hear I got a when I get a text you're sparring so and so today for my my boxing coach. I, the guy's not a real, you know, I'm not fighting pros and I'm not a tough guy, but it's just look, it's it I get like this terrible feeling in my stomach because it's going to hurt. Something might happen. I might get punched. It's scary, you know, and then I don't breathe right and you're exhausted. But I, I think that you you prepare. The way I look at it is if you want to be good at something, you got to spend You got It's got to be daily attendance. It's not so much to train, you know, four hours, five hours a day, but daily attendance is very important. And when you're doing that daily attendance, you're practicing properly. It's deep practice. You're practicing what you're bad at. And I think that stand-up is that way. I think that if you write every day, if you sit and you write every day, and if you have a mindset, if your mindset is a comedy mindset, then then you'll you'll be further ahead. So that you know, um, okay. Here's I'm, I'm I'm digressing a little bit, but but if you want to be good at something, I think it's a mistake to to even use the word work. I don't like work hard. I don't like those punitive ideas. I don't like the word discipline. I don't like the term work hard. I don't like work ethic. I don't like that stuff because it's a little bit self-congratulatory. It's also a little bit prohibitive. It also sounds very um, uh, sort of, there's a forward tilt to that kind of language. I like the idea, I like mindset. I like the idea, just, just always have a mindset, always be writing. Take the space, the sacred space, away from the workspace. Don't it's not, it's not, don't put fencing around your workspace. Always be writing, always be working. It's your it's a way of life, right? It's a little bit like staying in shape. I just eat a certain way because I it's the way I live my life. My you know it's a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. So is marriage. So is your career. It's always a verb. It's always changing. And some days nothing happens. Even though you sat at the desk and tried to work, no problem. That's what happened that day. Nothing happened. It's okay. It's important. Some days you procrastinate and it bothers you that you didn't write. Well, that's probably a good thing too because it was kind of on your mind anyway. 
So these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. That's, that's how you swim with something. That's how you swim with a process as opposed to kind of like beat yourself up because you didn't sit down and write. Um, and I don't think you'll ever get it right. I mean, just, just it, it, it's, 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 you're always going to be a little bit like Martha Graham wrote this great essay about this. There's always a queer sense of dissatisfaction with what you have accomplished. And then she said, it's not really your business to judge what you've done. Your business is just to do it because you can and because there's only one you. So just be original and honest with yourself. That's the idea. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, I wanna go way, way, way back. Let's take back to your first memory of where you were when you were growing up before you moved for the 700th time, what your family was with your mom and dad, brothers and sisters maybe, the socioeconomic dynamic in terms of money and what was happening within the area that you were. And then what was your first inspiration to get into this crazy business? Um, my, so, so I grew up, my father was, had been a Marine and did other things in the military and then um, was a real man's man, you know, a big, powerful, you know, farm boy from Wisconsin, a real patriot and a tough guy, a great father, but never around because he, of the nature of his work. He was always gone. And, uh, but I knew I was always loved and he was always very supportive. I knew I was the most important thing to him. He was very good at that somehow, even though he was, he was just, he had to go away all the time. I somehow understood that. My mother would always learn the language of every country we were in. And we always ate the food in the countries we were in. We always immersed ourselves in the culture. Your mother learned the language. Yes. My mother spoke French and Italian and Spanish, but she learned Arabic fluently. Um, and she learned Urdu when we were living in Pakistan. She learned some Hindi in India. Always, always, and I remember very well in Saudi Arabia, we were in the desert, in the dunes, and she and I went down and, and joined the, the original Bedouin. The, the Bedouin are, they live essentially on some bread, camel milk, dates. They're tall, they're fierce-looking people. You know, they're beautiful. They're, they're like the indigenous people of, of, of the peninsula. And uh, very, very, very... Um, gracious. They're very welcoming if you are a guest. And um, I remember sitting with them 
in their sheets, in their tent, in this desert, eating goat. It was a goat grab, and we were standing there, and you eat with your right hand. You never eat with your left hand. Your left hand you do all the dirty things with. Your right hand you shake hands with and you eat with. That's why in Saudi Arabia, when you're caught stealing, they'll cut your right hand off. So you have to wait till everybody's done eating, and then you get to eat because you only have one hand. There's pretty punitive stuff. But um, uh, So that was my childhood. I was always, my mother was such a humanitarian. My father was an American who was always doing work and probably doing stuff for the government. But my mother was this real anthropologist in a way, always, always brought us to the markets, always eating the food that was there. So I grew up not like an American. I grew up like the people I was around. I grew it's up fascinating that your dad, blue collar, working man, mm -hmm. worked with his body and his hands. Mm -hmm presumably not as much with his mind mm -hmm. and your mom was an intellectual and with a thirst for knowledge well my father became that though so he grew up poor or he grew up certainly blue collar and then he went to college he went to the marines and then he he put himself through college and he always had a voracious appetite for learning and he was very aware that he had grown up in a provincial part of the world but his mother his mother always made him she just told him he was the second coming. <laughs> she was amazing. <clears throat> and so he um, he never stopped learning, still hasn't. I mean, he's 76, and he takes guitar and Italian, and he plays golf like he like somebody owes him money. He's just never stopped. So, again, that's an example that's set at home. I grew up with that. I grew up with a father who was the most determined person. My mother always said, your father, your father is more determined. He'll kill himself before he loses. And she used to say when we'd go running, she said, let him win because he'll have a heart attack trying to keep up with you. He won't let you win. <laughs> he was that kind of, that's a Marine. There's a very different kind of way to, I, I always went, gee, if that's the, if that's where the bar set, you know, I'm not, I'm not like that. I always felt like a big pussy around the big man, you know, and I still do. Just if you don't mind, yeah. let's just flash back to what we were talking about before. Mm. Okay. This is fascinating. Let your dad win. Let your dad beat you. Let your dad pass you. Because mm. if he doesn't pass you, he's going to be, using my words, very, very unhappy and beating himself up inside. Yeah. We talked earlier about the business that I'm in as a manager, that you're an artist. I told you my philosophy about how I look at things with the faceless. And you said, as an artist, I can't look at beating people mm -hmm. because I can't look at it that way. So that's one of the one things that's interesting about that you didn't take from your dad. I see in you so much of what you describe of your dad and your mom, but that's the one thing no, that you I, didn't yeah, carry I didn't. over. I didn't, no. I, I didn't because I think that... Uh, my father provided a lifestyle for me where I didn't have to worry about where my next dollar was coming from. And he didn't have that. And I wonder what I'd be like if I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. I might be a bad guy. It's very easy to be generous and <clears throat> magnanimous and talk this way when I've never gone hungry. You know, this is why I always, I always have a little, there's a little governor on myself there, right? Because... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good guy. 
I, I, I do. I care about people and I am generous, <clears throat> but it's because I can be. All right. So you're traveling all over the world for your dad job. Yeah. So, so I real I wanted to be like my father. I had one idea of what masculinity was, right? Which is alpha male, uh, you know, captain of finance, marine, man, you know. And uh, uh, you don't cry, you know. Emotion is emotions are for the weak. That was always the case. This is a 1950s male with a lot of that ancient residue, that hunter fighter residue, you know, that that that, that genetic memory that most of us have. And I just noticed one of the guys who worked for him, this guy, Ken Wormser, worked for him. And Ken had a, when he would walk, he had a very distinctive walk. One foot would shoot out to the right. It was clear as day. And I watched him walk. And of course, his foot would shoot out. And I went, it's very strange the way Ken's foot shoots to the right like that. And my father, and this guy had been working for him for five years or something, my father said, Never noticed that. <laughs> I went, bro, you and I, I, I mean, it was such a bummer in a way because I was like, you and I are so different. You see the world so different. How do you not see that? It, the guy may as well have had a siren. It'd be like if somebody was black and I was like, I didn't know he was African-American. He goes, I didn't notice that. What? I mean, it was that obvious to me. And, you know, cause I pay attention. What a surprise. I'm an actor. I'm a mimic. You know, that's what I'm interested in. You know, I, 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 I'm probably fairly good at sports, not even because I'm an athlete. I'm just good at mimicry. I can, I can read body language and I can mimic it, you know? So um, th- th- that, was, that was the first, the first realization that I better, I better live my own life. I can't work at Lehman Brothers as a banker anymore. And I quit because I, I realized that if I didn't follow what I really wanted to do, which was to be an actor. I just wanted to do what De Niro had done in Raging Bull. Was that the first movie that you saw that you said, I want to do this? Two thing? things. It was it was De Niro in Raging Bull and it was Springsteen live. I listened to him sing Johnny 99 on the live album. I didn't know Springsteen and I didn't really know De Niro. And when I saw that shit, I was so blown away. I, I felt something so deep. It was so, it was such a deep feeling inside of me. Like I, I didn't know how to deal with this overwhelming sense of, this profound sense of joy and sadness. This profound sense of being alive. I, I was, I, I literally didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what to do. You know those women you see screaming at the Beatles in those old things where they, they're, they're, they, they, they faint and they have to be taken out. I'm telling you, man, I, I, after I saw Raging Bull and I saw what he did with his body and it was probably in 1980, not, I don't know, nine, 1990, I don't know what it was. And I went, I, I looked at my friend, I go, who's that guy? What, what, what is that? What, what happened? I need to see this movie again. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, man. I couldn't fucking believe it. And then I saw De Niro do that Russian roulette scene in Deer Hunter where that movie's way too fucking long. I didn't know what to do with myself. And then I listened to Springsteen shout that song, Johnny 99, about a kid who, who shot somebody in a fit of rage and now is going away for the rest of his life. They had to drag his girlfriend out of the courtroom. I, I literally, those were, the, those were the, the moments I decided I had to be an artist or I was going to fucking die. Or I certainly was never going to be able to live it down. I was never going to be able to look myself in the, I didn't like myself. You know, I, I realized that I 
didn't like myself and that I was different, that I wasn't the kind of man my father was. And I went to theater school and I had an interview with this big, wonderful gay man named Richard Pinter. And, and he was, he, he had this giant mustache and he said something and I got embarrassed and he said, you got embarrassed. That's good. And I went, oh shit. And then he said, you have, you have a very different sense of what masculinity is, my friend. And I'm going to teach you that there's something else to masculinity. And there's something else and that what you have is just as strong because there are dogs and there are cats, you know, and cats may not be as strong as a dog, but a dog can't catch a cat. A cat has a different kind of understanding and dogs need a pack and you may not need a pack, my friend. Boy, that's those, those, those moments as a young man, when somebody gives you some ammo and they give you some, some navigation equipment for this insane life. It's, it's really quite, um, it's quite life-saving. And so going back to me being a healer, when I see young men who are lost, I, I talk to them that way because I understand and I, and I try to give them the right things to read and I try to give them the right things to listen to because you have to immerse yourself in the best that's been thought and said. And I think Matthew Arnold said that. And I, I think that's very important to listen to the accumulated wisdom of those that came before you. You can't do it all on your own. It's impossible. And so I think that's, uh, that's how, you know, look at what Newton said, right? I, I stood on the shoulders of giants. I don't believe that he was being modest, but no, he was right in a way. Um, th 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 these are very important things, concepts. These are very important ideas. They help you. You know, I remember um, we live in a world that likes to break us into good guys and bad guys. Terrorists, non-terrorists, Americans and everybody else, left-wingers, uh, these fucking communists and right-wingers. And, you know, <laughs> and we love to do this and we break into teams. Well, uh, Amos Oz, who's an Israeli writer, he's a beautiful man. His mother committed suicide. And he said, uh, he said, Hamas, they were talking about Hamas. He said, Hamas is a bad idea. And the way you beat a bad idea is not with guns. You beat a bad idea with a better idea. I never forgot that. This country, this country was founded on a better idea. The founding fathers solved the political problem and they didn't kill each other with the exception of maybe Hamilton and Burr. But, but uh, you know, they didn't kill each other. They didn't resort to violence. They, 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 they dueled it out without air conditioning. Fucking July, I think. And they solved the political problem. Probably Madison and Hamilton get the, the lion's share of that, that, that you know. I mean, they, they wrote the Federalist Papers. They, they framed the Constitution. We never argue about whether the Constitution is right or wrong. We just argue about how it's interpreted. Uh, so these are the kind... And though they wouldn't have been what they were without the Greeks and without John Locke and without David Hume and without the people that came before them. So... Uh, I think that I think it's very important to, 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 for, for, to, to be humble enough to listen to those that came before you. Before I ask the next question, I'm going to ask you something that I've never asked anyone in over 200 episodes. Mm. I want you to tell our audience five books that you would recommend that changed your life and who the authors were. Well, it's a great question. I mean, I love the question. Um, I think everyone should read Joseph Campbell. And I think The Power of Myth uh, is a great place to start. And I think anything by Joseph Campbell is wonderful. 
Um, you know, I, if I was a young man, I would say, hey, Ayn Rand, I read everything that she ever wrote. Um, because uh, it'll give you something to root for and maybe even something to root against. I think that she paints Christ figures, and I don't believe in Christ figures, but uh, she was 12 years old. She, she came from Russia, and she saw a better way, and she was incredibly courageous for her time. There was a lot of opposition to her. Um, so if you're young, read her. Even if you don't agree, it's, it, you should know what you don't agree with. Um, and uh, it's, it's a great, it's really, I love, I love the question. Um, you know, and, and then there are the important seminal books. I mean, you know, I could go through Why Nations Fail or that's uh, Darren Asamoglu that's and true. another guy. Um, but, but, but that's, that's more, that's more, to, the, 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 those are more kind of understandings of why, you know, there's The Birth of Plenty by William Bernstein. I mean, these are books that kind of give you an idea of, well, no, so, 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 no. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not saying those books. I think you, you have to read Plato's Dialogues. I think you have to read the symposium. You have to. I mean, Socrates was as close to a god. He's the most lonely man in the world. He was the smartest person in the world. He he was um, he's the bulldozer. He will get you to realize that the life you're living is not built on stone. You're probably living on you know balsa wood, and, and we all are. And he makes you realize that even though he wrote what he wrote, I think 3,500 years ago, nobody can take the responsibility away from you for being a human being. I love Seneca. Read Seneca on the shortness of life. I think that's also very important and very inspiring. Um, you know, these are, I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in philosophy, man. I think it's really important. And, and I, I won't give you books to read on this, but I think there's an audible.com. You can get, something that'll change your life. And that is that there is a course called The Great Ideas of Philosophy by Daniel Robinson. Daniel Robinson is my academic hero. He knows everything. He did my podcast and he's since retired and he's probably 80 now. And he has published more on philosophy, I think, than anybody living today. But he breaks, there are 60 30-minute lectures. I know it seems like a lot. I know it seems prohibitive. But God damn it, if you don't do it, man, you'll be sorry. And if you do do it, I swear to God, you'll look at the world differently. Um, and so rather than a book, listen to somebody speak to you. I think that's, 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 that's my biggest recommendation. Um, I guess from there, um, you know, there are some great authors. You know, I've been listening to Jordan Peterson, who is... Uh, my favorite person right now. He's a modern day biblical prophet. He belongs in the Old Testament when there'd always be some prophet who would come to the Israelites and go, guys, you're worshiping false idols. I know things are going well, but you're fucking, you know, I'm telling you the Assyrians or the Persians or the, or the Babylonians, i.e. the Iraqis are going to come in and level the fuck out of you and just take you away as slaves. And they'd be like, get out of here, you crazy man. And sure enough, it'd be a natural disaster or, you know, the Assyrians would come in, ah, oh no, and we're sorry. And Peterson reminds me of that guy in some ways. He's he's just wonderful. Um, but And he would say, you know, read Nietzsche, read Jung, and read 
Solzhenitsyn and read uh, Nietzsche. I've read all of them. I'm not saying I understand them, but I've certainly tried and I've read them and I've even taken some courses on on, on that stuff. But um, but Plato's dialogues, um, Joseph Campbell, the the great ideas of philosophy and any philosophy. Um, don't read Kant; he's too complicated. <laughs> Um, and then uh, I let me think. Let me think. Let me think. What else? Uh, and then Ayn Rand. Um, and there's one more, I suppose. Um, I mean, the book that changed. I, fuck, I I don't know, man. I, I I have to. I'll come back to it. There's so many. There's so many. You know. I mean, I I I'm. Uh, I've read so. I I don't know. Um, so many great novels, and so many great. I mean. I mean, come on, man. I. I mean, if you're not going to read Hemingway, you can't go through your life without reading Hemingway. What, what are you going to do? Don't worry about fucking, uh, you know, the, the, the Joyce. You know, you'll be there forever. But Hemingway? You're not going to read A Movable Feast? You know, For Whom the Bell Tolls? Death in the Afternoon about bull riding? What are you talking about, man? You have to. If you're a young man, you better. You don't, you don't go through your life not having read Hemingway. You got it. And, you know, so just choose authors. That guy. There are certain seminal thinkers that changed the conversation. He might have been one of them. You know, there are plenty of people that tried to be like him, like me. So tell me, as you're going through life, absorbing all this knowledge, you're going to acting class, you're learning. What's your first break in show business? How did it happen? How many failures did you have beforehand? And at what point did you say to yourself, I am never going to work in a place where I make a dollar other than in the entertainment business? Yeah, well, first of all, you're always failing, right? So especially when you write a special, you do a special. I mean, there are always things within that that are failures. Uh, but you want to be more on the side of success than otherwise. So just get comfortable with failure. It's a very important part of the process. Um, you know, and and so uh, I think that my first success was I wrote, I had to audition for these two agents. I don't remember, I was young, and I had to do a monologue, and I wrote a monologue. I wrote it. I was terrified, but I wrote it, and I did it. And they were laughing, and they were laughing their ass off. I was probably 22 or 23, and I was playing it like a New York guy, you know what I'm saying? I walk in, and the guy, and I can't remember what I was doing, his accent, and I was doing the whole fucking thing, you know? And then the guys led me out. I wasn't looking, but, you know, I mean, the chick didn't want to talk to me. I was talking, he's a guy who was completely oblivious or something. I was in a funeral or something. I wrote this thing. They were, they were howling. And when I told them that I wrote it, they went, Jesus, you're so talented. Where are you? Who are you? They wanted to sign me immediately. They were just this mom and pop bus and truck version of, you know. But I, that was huge validation for me, man. They were men in their 40s. Did you sign with them? I did, I think, for a couple minutes. And then somebody picked me up, you know, then I got, then I did some stand up and I got into a guy like you, yourself, you know, Ken Trush, I think, saw me. Ken Trush. Uh, who I just saw. An amazing young manager in New York who found a niche of mm -hmm. people who were yeah. doing improvisational things on stage. I was at the Rebar. Dave Becky put me up. David Blaine called Dave Becky and David, I had gone to theater school with him and David Blaine said, you got to put this guy on. And he saw a tape of mine and he goes, yeah, you're unique. Yeah, you're very unique. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of where the fuck I'll put you on. I guess, uh, yeah, just go ahead and put you on a third or something. And I was like, what? <laughs> Hung up, you know. I was like, all right. I fucking love him. I just saw him last night. Um, it's great about this festival, right? You see everybody. And it's like high school, man. You love everybody. It's, it's just in- good to see everybody. It's incredible. So, yeah. But what was the inspiration to going on stage and doing stand-up for the first time? Patty Jenkins. But this is a woman who was essentially not getting anything done or making anything happen with whatever she created. She wouldn't compromise, yeah. And for some miraculous, fateful reason, she found out that a woman who was a serial killer was killing people in her town. Eileen Warnes, I was with her when we watched the documentary. And she decides to write her in prison and ends up writing back and she writes a screenplay. She's never written a screenplay. She's not a drama person. She's living with Brian... Callum, she's into comedy. Through a series of fortuitous events, she meets a guy who says he'll dedicate a million dollars to the project. She wants Charlize Theron. She goes to Charlize Theron. Charlize says, I'll do it, but I need $3 million. I normally make 10 She finds a way to get financing with these people for $3 million and does it. Patty, when I saw her, you know, my father gave her away at her wedding. That's how close we are, okay? I dated her for nine years, but you know, I love her husband, and you know we, we, she's my sister. We don't even talk about the fact I dated her a million years ago, so we don't talk. But but that's how close we are. And when I saw her do, I saw the dailies of Monster, dude, and she was in there with my mother, and I was watching the scene where Charlize Theron asks for help, where she says, "I need I'm, I need some help for the first time in her life, dude." I was watching the dailies, and this is something, and. It's a little bit like when you realize that you've known somebody since they were 19 and now they're 30 and you realize that you don't know them at all because they're, they're great. They're not good. They're great. Like they have greatness in them. And I was watching, I was watching these dailies and I was watching greatness and I, I started to cry and I didn't want my mother and Patty to see me crying, man. I'm a man. But I was, I was crying like, I was like, I would, but thank God the room was dark. I would, I would thank God, because I, it was an overwhelming sense of glory, this overwhelming sense of oh my God, she's done it, she's done something great here, and I had to get the fuck out of the room. I had to, I had to leave. I couldn't be in the room because I didn't want them to see me this fucking overwhelmed. And then of course the rest is history. But I made a speech. I think it was at a wedding, and I was trying to be an actor. And she looked at me and she goes, hey, you're not, you know, going to be the brooding Robert De Niro. I mean, the the chances of that are you got a better chance of being a senator for a thousand reasons. Stand up comedy. You're really funny. You're really funny. Because I was always making people laugh, including her. And I said, really? And she took me to stand up New York. And this was... I don't know, 1843. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and fucking, guess who was on the lineup? Uh, Jack, Greg Giraldo and Dave Attell. I mean, back in their, you know, their just heyday. And a bunch of other killers. And I was so blown away by how good they were that I, I couldn't even laugh, dude. I was like, I, if this is what stand-up is, I can't do this. And then, you know, but she was the one who got it all started. She's the one who made me do it. She made me make the date at Stand Up New York. I couldn't get out of it. 
Incredible. She was there for my first fucking show, you know, and my second show and my third, you know, and so I don't think I would have been a comic if it wasn't for her. So tell me the moment where you realized you're not going to be living in the shitty apartment anymore. When I got Mad TV. When I got Mad TV, when I, when Kentrish called me and said, you blew him away in the room and the job is yours. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, no matter what happens, I made it on TV. (laughs) No matter what happens, I'm no longer an amateur. I'm a professional. Like, no matter what happens, I can call my parents and say, tune in. Tune in, man. Because I'm going to be on TV every week. (laughs) It was incredible. And so now you're in a better position, but now be careful of what you wish for because one of the things that people don't talk about, and it's an unspoken thing, is that same thing we talked about earlier on the podcast. You get hired, and you're now with a group of people. Some are much more experienced than you. Some don't follow the rules of the production. Some support you. Some tell you that they support you, and behind your back, they want you out so they can get more time. Some people write sketches and then tank them when it comes time to get them on, just so they can get their thing on. So this is the first time in your life in a performance setting that you're with all these different personalities, and a lot of people don't play by the rules. How did you navigate and win when so many people failed? Well, part part of it is I ignore it all, and I don't enter it. I don't even think about it. I literally don't think about it. It's the best way to do it. I don't. I don't. I don't get involved. I don't. I, whether they're trying to backstab or whatever, it's not even a question I ask. If there's a sniper in the tree, mm-hmm. he can take down the whole army. If you don't think about it, you're going to get dumped. Well, I, I will. I will. There was a caveat to what I was saying. Um, so I was, I was informed that there was a sniper twice, a couple times in my career. And it was true that they were not good guys or that they were, uh, they were a little bit underhanded and they would try to, you know, sabotage or more, more importantly, they would, uh, really go out of their way to make you, I was warned, don't get too close to that person because they'll bring you down. That's what they do or they get jealous or whatever. And I'll just say this. I never really said this, but <clears throat> there's a difference, bro, between you know, between a lot of comics and me in that circumstance. And I let it be known. I was like, if you're gonna do that, you know, if, if I'm not gonna be, I'm not your regular guy. I'm not. I'm not gonna just go. Oh, I'll beat your. I'll fucking beat you up. Or we can we can go outside. And regardless of whether you're big, or whatever, we can just fight. How's that sound? How's that sound? How's it? We just we just shake it up a little bit. This is not coming from a tough guy. If my friends like Brendan Schaub, who's a real fighter, heard me talking like this, he'd be so embarrassed and be mad at me for right now for because he's a UFC fighter. But but there is a time in life where if you know, and 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 I let it be known, I let it be known that that you know, I was like, well, here's the difference, bro. You know, if you do that then then I'm going to do it I'm going to do something different I'm not going to mope about it it's, we're going to something's going to happen what was the response I, they didn't fuck around with me they 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 were 
they were informed through a third party. I let it be known that, you know, if that's the case, and I also let it be known, they're actually, one person, one person heard it. Yeah, I, I let them know because they did something that was not cool. And I said something to somebody once where I said, the difference between me and those guys you know is that, that I'll wait for you outside. I'll wait for you out when you're done. And I, and, and if I, you know, if I, if I, if I get you, I'm going to stomp you into the fucking curb. I remember I was young and hot, you know, I was hot. You know what I mean? You're not, you don't think, you know, and this is a very inappropriate response. It's also a very inappropriate thing to talk about. I'm a little embarrassed by it that I'm saying this because I'm painting myself as some tough guy or something. It's ridiculous. But so I'm, I'm, I, that's, I understand that. But, um, but I, but I, I did. And I, and I, when I said that, that, that person had never been spoken to that way. I have been spoken to that way. You understand? So when you wrestled or when you do whatever taekwondo or boxing you're, or whatever sport you play, you know, if you play lacrosse, if you play football, you're very aware, dude, that there are guys out there. And I'm very aware that there are guys that like out there that can do whatever they want to me, no matter how much I train and stuff. So I'm, I don't do that. I'm really respectful. This is why I never would ever go bad on somebody on social media. I'd never tweet about some dude in a backhanded way. I would never do that, man. Because even if you do something to me, because if, if, I, don't, I don't think it's very manly. If we have a problem, I'm going to come up to you and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to figure out what this is going on. That's, it's, it's very, very uh, cowardly to be behind a keyboard. It's very cowardly to me to, to assassinate somebody's character or to go bad on somebody. I don't understand that. I think it's much better to do it in an old-fashioned way. I remember something you said. Some guy could look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you can just wipe the floor with him. And another guy who looks like Rick Moranis could yeah. make you into a woman. Rick Moranis' character, know, I'll say. Yeah, what happens if you walked out and said that to this person and they looked you in the eyes and say, go ahead, bro. I'm up to that challenge. I will fuck you up too. I'd be very nervous. And I, and I'll tell you a story about that. That's great. But, but I, but I, I, if I'm going to do that, I'm ready and I'm ready to get my ass kicked. I'm very aware that that's a possibility. Do you understand? So th that's the difference. I'm crucially aware that I, that could happen to me. I mean, I'm not this big guy. Look at me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, there are plenty of dudes. I'm very aware that I, and by the way, I said that to a guy Jamie Kaler was there, and the guy said, I'll punch you in the face, Jamie. And I had been um, <laughs> practicing this stupid jiu-jitsu move that I saw you can do with a jacket. And, I, and, I, and my wife was pregnant at the time, and she was right next to me. And I go, I go you going to punch who in the face? And I wanted to practice this move. This is at World Cafe on Santa Monica. And I went at him. And this awesome little waitress, I, I just was, she took her little nails and stuck them in my freaking stomach and stood behind me and God kept me at, the, at bay. You know what the dude did? He looked at me and he goes, I go, stop talking, man. He, Why don't you do something? And he goes, I'll be waiting outside quietly. And I went, uh-oh, wait a minute. I don't, this guy might be a real fighter. And I just threatened and in front of everybody challenged him, right? So he's waiting outside. And I go, I guess I got to go out and fight him. Here goes nothing. And my wife goes, excuse me, excuse me. You're 40. I don't know what I was, 45. She goes, first of all, you're 45. Second of all, I'm pregnant. Third of all, 
who are you? This is ridiculous. And fourth of all, let's see what the upside is. The upside is you beat him up and then you go to jail and you get sued. The, uh, the bad side is you get punched, knocked out, lose your teeth, and you can't be on stage in Dallas tomorrow. If you could explain where the upside is, and I sobered up so quickly, I wasn't even drunk, but I sobered up, and I looked at my friend Mike Muldoon, and I went, Mike, I got to go out there and act tough, because otherwise everybody's going to think I'm a pussy, but you can't let me fight. You have to stop. He was a big guy. I go, so I'm going to pretend to fight him. You have to get in the way in case he's either a tough guy or he's not a tough guy, but there's no upside. And I, I, I remember immediately not wanting to fight him. Immediately, I sobered up. I was like, oh, this guy... This guy's going to meet me halfway, man. And I'm a comedian. I'm not training all the time. So, you know, listen, I know, you know, sometimes you say shit, you, you're, 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 you can't cash. Your ass can't cash these checks. So, uh, and Mike, Mike looked at me and said, um, I'm not letting you go out there. You're not even getting out there to do that. I'm not letting you out there. And he's just too big. And, and it was, oh, and by the way, the guy was out there and he was shadow boxing and the cops came up and they told him to move on. And then I was leaving with my girl and she was pregnant and he was there in the parking lot. And he was, I saw him kind of moving around. I swear to God, he was through shadow boxing. And I could tell by the way he was through shadow boxing that he wasn't a fighter. I could tell he didn't really know what he was doing. And I said to my wife, I go, um, I wish he was here because she adds a lot of good things. I said, maybe I should just for the for a goof. He was with his friend who wasn't there. Maybe I should go fight him. Nobody's around. And she goes, get in the car or I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to divorce you. But, I, but the only reason, it wasn't that I was brave. I could tell by the way he was moving that he was not anything. Like I, it was like so. It wasn't me being brave. And oh, by the way, he wasn't a big guy. So I, it sounds like I'm you know. But I was like, would it be cool if I was just like we just duked it out like old fashioned. I got in my car, which at the time was a Prius, Barcelona Red. Thank you very much. I'm a real tough guy. I got in my Prius, and as I pulled around, he was in the parking lot, and, and, I, and I looked at him, and I went, sorry we couldn't fight. Maybe next time. Bye. And I put it away, and he was like, fuck you. He tried to chase the car. I drove away. So that's my fight story, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, God, I just painted myself as this, you know, but no. I'm painting myself as this hothead, tough guy, Italian guy. I'm not. The next adversity that people don't talk about yeah. is the actual process of a show where there are executive producers and people in charge who are paid a lot of money, and they're the ones who make the decisions, and they are the kings and the queens, mm. And you guys are the court jesters. You mm -hmm. pawns being moved around. That's right. And even when you do great work and put things together and write great stuff, one week they just say, you know what? That's not getting on. That's not funny. We're not going to put this on. We're not going to do this. And now you find yourself at a certain point where the money sometimes isn't worth working for the man and having the man tell you, what they think is funny when you know what's funny. How did you handle that? Well, I mean, I, I just learned a long time ago that complaining or worrying about that is like an NFL football player worrying about hurting his knee. The, 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 the nature of the business is not linear. <clears throat> the, the business is such that you um, will be pushed aside for reasons that have nothing to do with you. It's never going to be any different. You know, um, or you're just not as good. 
sometimes as some people, or you didn't work as hard. You know, this business in many ways is fair. There's no second place. You know, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm pretty successful. I'm not as successful. You know, it's fair in a lot of ways, you know, um, because you've got to be more than talented. You have to be strategic and business minded. You know, you've got to have good management like Barry Katz. You've got to you got to have all these things. Um, it's it's you got to be you got to pay attention to details. And I'm not good at details. I've had to learn and I've learned from people who are younger than me, like Brendan Schaub, who's my partner in the podcast. Um, so I keep learning. You said something that struck me. You said there were long stretches of your career and <clears throat> your beginnings of your life where you didn't like yourself. When did you start liking yourself? What happened? Oh, I think when I realized that no one has anything on the ball and that um, confusion and shame and failure are just all part of what everyone goes through. Um, and being afraid, you know, especially being afraid and, 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 uh, lying. I lie, you know, I lie all the time about what I'm doing or who I am for real or, you know, you know, in, in a way, I, I mean, I you mean lie that, to yourself. Yeah. You know, you lie. Um, you, 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 you tend, uh, I tend to pretend I'm way braver than I really am. And I think we all do that. You know, it's, it's terrifying to think of yourself as a coward, you know, um, or somebody who didn't work hard enough or somebody who is taking the easy route. And we all do that. We're all running toward p pleasure and away from pain. And I think that comes with a, a, a great deal of shame sometimes. But I, you know, as you get older, I'm 50, for Christ's sake. You, you look like you're 28 I've years old. I've had a lot of work done, Barry. But thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I think... I don't know why you just you hit me. You know, sometimes you say something and it seems so simple, but it's so fucking funny. It's just so silly. But no, but I mean, you know, you learn, to, you learn to like yourself. You know, I know very successful people. That's the other thing about getting older. You get to know very successful people. People are worth a billion dollars and more. And people who are really famous, and they've done, and boy, are they a bundle of insecurities, <laughs> ain't they? Boy, are they a bundle. They usually, they usually have a hole they can't fill, right? And they're liars, and, and they exaggerate, and it's all, you know, you're like, Jesus, you're, you're actually worse than I am. I mean, you look great on paper, but you're a shithead. I love you anyway, right? So th this, is, this is where you start to realize, maybe I'm not that bad. You know, Christ, at least I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do the right thing. It's so hard. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So 
You can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business? I'm still waiting for it, my friend. I'm still waiting for it. I mean, I don't know. I think um, after I shot my first special, my father wrote me a long email, and he had never really seen me, seen me do stand-up. And he said, um, he said, most of my friends have had disappointing parenting experiences. And he said, I can't believe you're my son. He said, I can't believe this piece of dynamite was up on that stage. And he said, and, and I, no, that was my second most, my proudest moment was when he saw me in front of my entire family at Stand Up New York, I think it was. And, um, and I did a killer set, a killer set. And he kept throwing his face into his hands. He couldn't fucking believe it and he looked at me and he said I, I, I how did you do that I how do you where does that come from where do you he didn't even understand where it came from he didn't know what I was doing he had no idea how I had that kind of an imagination he couldn't believe it you know he he kept I, I've never seen him laugh like that that was you know that was my father you know that was the guy who it was so hard for him to say he sent me through acting school, but it was so hard for him to accept that I was going to be a failure, that I was going to be somebody he'd probably have to pay for his whole life, you know, because who makes it in acting and stand up? What? But I was really good, man, when I did it. And I had my whole family and that whole room. I was destroying the room fucking destroying and they were laughing so hard and when i got off they went and my father was like he went i can't believe it i just heard him say i can't believe it he had his hands out he was looking and i was 40 i don't know how old i was i was 40 he had never seen me really incredible your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level i mean i've had so many disappointments barry i've had so many failures I've had so many auditions that almost were and didn't and weren't. They, my heart was broken so many times I stopped worrying about it. I'm not joking. I, I mean, you know, my father and I became such good friends and close because he couldn't believe how well I took the, the, the massive amount of failure. So that's an impossible question, my brother. I mean, that, that, I mean my biggest disappointment, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't prepare for my first special. And I threw up the whole thing and didn't edit it because I couldn't bear to watch myself. I made a big mistake there. I paid a big price for that. Still have. Big, big mistake. I mean, it was on Showtime, but it could have been way better if I hadn't gone off and done some fucking movie for six weeks. And if I had prepared and been doing stand-up every fucking night, that was the worst. So that's probably my biggest disappointment. Dumb, dumb mistake. Sabotage. And what advice would you have for the young person who's going from country to country 
doesn't know what he's going to do, living in shitty places, doing a job he doesn't like. Ask yourself what you really want and ask yourself what you would what you would ask for if you knew you couldn't be refused. And how do they have the kind of career that you have? There's no linear way. All you can do is write every day, write what you care about, and perform all the time, even in front of the mirror, and especially in front of the mirror. And things are written when you're alone. And it's, again, it's a mindset. It's a mindset. There's a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck that's fun to read if you're young or anybody, but mindset is that idea. Keep your eye on the prize and, um, and realize that, that, that is, that is, um, there's something about, uh, intention, clarity of intention for the right reason, right? Um, you don't have to try to reinvent the wheel, but do it for yourself. Get personal, you know, ask yourself who you are and what you want. And I think that a good way to, um, I'm looking at this spontaneous fulfillment of desire, this book you have by Deepak Chopra. Well, desire is a little bit dangerous sometimes because there are two ways to define who you are. One is what you want and then what you need. And what you want and what you actually need sometimes are diametrically opposed. What you want and what you need are very different things, which is one of the values of great story. And I got that concept from John Truby in his amazing book, The Anatomy of Story, another great book. Um, But what you want may inform who you are, but oftentimes you have to give up what you want to get what you need. And that's where you come to new equilibrium and you come to who you really are. And if you think about all the great stories, that's the trajectory. That is that is the story of the character of the individual. So remember that. You may want fame, but that doesn't exist, my friends. Ask yourself what you need. And I think what you need is to grow and to contribute and to have an impact and to make the world, I guess, a better place. We all love immortality. And you can do that through your children, and you can also do that through your work. And hopefully you can do both. Brian Callen, you are one of the most authentic, extraordinary, impactful people (laughs) I have ever met in my entire life. And I am so honored that you sat down, and this has been mind-blowing and educational experience i've learned so much today and i'm going to listen to this podcast myself over and over again to figure out how to be a better man and i appreciate that well that's very flattering and i really appreciate this this has given me energy for my show so thank you my friend you're the best okay i'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on a review by Fogwell from November 8th, 2017. 
Oh, it's just recently. The heading is entitled Great Podcast, Five Stars, and he writes, or she, Great Insight to the Biz and Hollywood. Don't mind the 405 when Katz is on. Thank you so much, Fogwell, alluding to the famous 405 that almost caught on fire recently. I hope it wasn't during those times. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code BARRY, and get $100 off and get the best-tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. You love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, ikilledjfk.com. And lastly, my thanks to Wondery. Check out all the best podcasts in the world there at wondery.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. I've really enjoyed today. See you next time. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.